Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, March 3rd. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. In California, an investigation growing into the horrific crash of an SUV carrying 25 people, at least 13 people, including 10 Mexican nationals, losing their lives in that wreck. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers grilling FBI Director Christopher Wray about the January insurrection. Wray confirming that far-right groups were behind that attack, underscoring the threat these groups posed to the nation. And as health experts warn about new coronavirus surges, several states revoking their mask mandates, while President Joe Biden is promising a new sped-up vaccine timeline. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. At this hour, we're learning more about a severe and deadly crash in California that involved an SUV carrying more than two dozen people. Given the location of that crash, not far from the U.S.-Mexico border, concerns about migration and potential human smuggling loom. Salvador Duran has the very latest from the scene. Salvador, what do we know at this time? Andrea, good morning. And uh, ICE actually confirmed with us this morning that they are investigating the case as smuggling, uh, as a case of uh, human smuggling in a statement that they sent to us just a few minutes ago. Now, we are at the crash site at this time, and what we can show you right now is some of the crosses that members from this community have brought here. Um, they've brought crosses and they've brought candles to remember the victims, and we can actually still see debris here from the accident. You can see some of the glass from um, the vehicles that were involved in this crash. Um, we can also tell you that a, a second investigation is going on right now where authorities are trying to figure out exactly how the accident occurred. Now, as you know, and you mentioned earlier, at least 13 people have died from this crash. Uh, many of the injured have been transported to hospitals. Some of them are still in critical condition. Some of them have been released from the hospital and others are in stable condition. But at this time, we also wanted to share with you uh, an interview that we um, did this morning with one of the activists from the area who says that this is not the first accident that happened and he doesn't believe it will be the last unless there are changes to immigration in the United States. Let's listen to what he has to say. I was here, and, it will, you know, after one day, after probably one month, people will forget the human beings, innocent human beings, who were trying to, to be together with their, with their loved ones or, or um, running away from violence were killed here, innocent people, and they will forget, and it will happen again probably in a month or six months. Now, uh, people from this community, uh, they say that it's uh, mind-boggling to think that 25 people were packed in that SUV, a vehicle that is uh, meant to carry uh, five or six people at a time. Um, authorities, they, they, their uh, Mexican authorities are now telling us also that uh, they're trying to figure out the nationalities of the uh, victims from this crash. They know that at least 10 of the deceased were of Mexican descent, and the consulate from Calexico here in California is also trying to notify next of kin 
their identities have not been uh, made public yet, but the investigation is ongoing and we will have more details to our audience when they become available in the next few hours or next few days, as this investigation is expected to last for at least the rest of the week. We're live in El um, Centro, I'm Salvador Duran. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Salvador, for that report. Let's continue discussing this story because it is not only heartbreaking, but also very concerning. Let's go to Frank Boris. He's formerly with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. He now runs a safety consulting business. Thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to U News. Thank you, Andre. It's good to be with you. And first, uh, let me offer my condolences to the, the families that lost loved ones in this horrible crash. Thank you. Likewise. Now, we know that at least 25 people were inside this SUV, but it was only intended to carry eight passengers. So what are the safety issues in terms of carrying all that extra weight at the moment of impact? Certainly. The, the addition of extra passengers and extra weight into the vehicle uh, are going to greatly exceed the manufacturer's design for the vehicle suspension, also the vehicle steering and braking. I think most concerning uh, based on what we know thus far about this crash is that when approaching the, the intersection, um, this driver would have to have initiated his braking much sooner than normal to compensate for the extra weight in the vehicle. And depending on the, the maintenance to the braking system, the condition of the tires, tire pressure, and all that weight, it could uh, certainly lead to uh, an extreme extension of stopping distances. What else do we know about this vehicle in particular at this time? Was this SUV adapted in any way to fit so many people, meaning were seats or anything else inside removed? They had to be jam-packed in there. Absolutely. My, my understanding is that this vehicle, the 97 Ford Expedition, comes in various um, uh, trim levels. So depending, we, we would need a VIN number to really confirm this. But this vehicle can be offered in anywhere from five to nine passengers. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, by regulation, um, uh, requires the manufacturer to assume a passenger weight of 150 pounds per person for each of those seating positions. With all the seats removed and with the addition of uh, 25 uh, uh, passengers total without proper uh, safety belts, seating restraints, uh, those people were immediately at, at risk as soon as they entered the vehicle and greatly um, increases the chance of ejection from the vehicle without the seat belts. And in the case of an injection, the fatality rates go up to 83% for people ejected from the vehicle. With proper seat belts, uh, the, the fatality rate decreases by 60%. So as soon as these people were put in this vehicle without seating, seating position and seat belts, they were greatly at risk of death and a crash. Wow, just terrible. Now, how unprecedented is an accident like this? Have you seen this number of people killed in a vehicle like this in the past? I have not. I, I have worked in the auto safety industry for, for 25 years, um, and I can't recall a, a, a crash um, with, with this, these specific numbers of people crammed into a vehicle. Um, it's, it's unprecedented from, from my experience. And the individuals that uh, allowed these, these persons to be crammed into these vehicles were treating them 
like cargo. Seat belts uh, are designed to protect people. They are the number one safety device in a vehicle and moving, removing the seats and cramming people into a vehicle without allowing them to be properly restrained is, is nearly a death sentence in the case of crash. I can only assume that this investigation will take some time. So since you have experience in this, what will investigators will be looking for in the coming weeks? Uh, depending uh, on who does the investigation, whether it's California Highway Patrol, um, if the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration gets involved or NTSB, they're all highly qualified professionals. They will come in with uh, professional crash reconstructionists who are trained to look at the uh, the deformation, the crush of the vehicle, look at the roadway surfaces and calculate uh, energy of impact, vehicle speeds, um, ascertain whether braking was applied or whether this was, uh, in the case of the expedition, someone trying to uh, run through the intersection. But uh, those investigations are uh, extremely thorough, complicated in nature. I've seen them range from a matter of weeks to, to many months, depending on the complexity of the crash. Such a sad story, but thank you so much for your time for elaborating on this subject. Thank you, Frank Boris, formerly with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. We'll be following all the developments very closely. Thank you, Andrea. And now turning to Washington, FBI Director Christopher Wray made his first public comments since the siege on the U.S. Capitol on January 6. Wray was grilled by senators on both sides of the aisle about a variety of issues. His testimony lasting more than three hours as the nation's top law enforcement officer answered questions about key intelligence obtained prior to that attack. FBI Director Chris Wray appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, testifying publicly for the first time since pro-Trump rioters breached the Capitol nearly two months ago. Wray was specific and blunt about who was responsible for that attack. Quite a number of who what we would call sort of militia violent extremists, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. We've already identified individuals who advocate for what you would call for white supremacy. The FBI director was pressed by Senator Dick Durbin. Do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that. Ray also making clear that Antifa and other left-wing groups were not part of the violence on January 6th, which he called domestic terrorism. Meanwhile, the director defended the FBI's sharing of critical information about possible threats to the Capitol ahead of January 6th, including its handling of the Norfolk memo, which has become central to questions about whether law enforcement agencies protecting the Capitol had enough intelligence before the attack to have been better prepared. Why didn't the FBI sound the alarm? There is so much chatter, often unattributed to somebody in a neatly identifiable way, where people are saying unbelievably horrific, angry, combative things, using language about beheading and shooting and explosives and all kinds of things like that, and separating out which ones are getting traction, which ones reflect intention as opposed to aspiration, is something that we spend an enormous amount of time trying to do. Sometimes we don't have the luxury of time and the ability to make those judgments. In previous testimony, the former and current Capitol Police chiefs acknowledged their department did receive the FBI's threat report the evening of January 5th. 
It was being shared for informational purposes, but has not been fully evaluated, integrated with other information, interpreted or analyzed. Receiving agencies are requested not to take action based on this raw reporting. Ray says the information obtained the day before the insurrection was put in the hands of D.C. officials. As to why the information uh, didn't flow to all the people within the various departments uh, that, uh, that they would prefer, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Capitol Police, meanwhile, say they have intelligence showing a possible plot by a militia group to breach the U.S. Capitol tomorrow. The threat appears to be connected to a far-right conspiracy theory, mainly promoted by supporters of QAnon, that Trump will rise again to power on March 4th. That date was the original presidential inauguration day until 1933, when it was moved to January 20th. And in other Capitol Hill news, the U.S. Senate has overwhelmingly voted to confirm Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo as the new Secretary of Commerce. Tuesday's vote was 84 to 15. Raimondo was Rhode Island's first female governor, and as the new Commerce Secretary, she faces the task of promoting job creation and economic growth across the country. President Biden is also expected to lean on Raimondo to rebuild relationships with the business community, which at times had been fractured or been fractured relationships with former President Donald Trump. At the White House, officials are now saying that President Biden will pull the nomination of Neera Tandon to lead the Office of Management and Budget. Tuesday, President Biden said he would honor Tandon's request to withdraw her name. Tandon is a former Clinton campaign aide and president of the left-leaning think tank Center for American Progress. The withdrawal comes after she was called out during the confirmation process about past critical comments of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Tandon apologized and expressed regret over her past tweets during Senate confirmation hearings. In his statement, Biden said he still looks forward to having Tandon serve in a different role as part of his administration. And as the nation's eyes remain on President Biden's massive stimulus bill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is saying he could bring the nearly two trillion COVID relief package to the Senate floor as soon as today. Edwin Pitti has the very latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Andrea. Let's break it down for you. After pressure from moderate Democrats, President Biden has agreed to narrow eligibility for the $1,400 stimulus payments before those making $75,000 a year would receive the check and it would face out for those making more money. But under the new change, those making $75,000 a year will still get the check, but the benefit would disappear altogether to individuals earning more than $80,000 annually. Moderate Democrats also want to lower the weekly federal unemployment benefits to $300 instead of $400. Meanwhile, President Biden made an aggressive pitch to Senate Democrats, telling them that they need to accept some provisions they might not like. There is a lot of movement on Capitol Hill, Andrea, today regarding the coronavirus stimulus bill, especially in the Senate, where Democrats are waiting for the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee staff to score the Senate amendments in order to move forward with the vote, but it's not going to be easy. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer knows it. He said he's expecting a hearty debate and some late nights, and that's exactly the plan 
for some GOP senators who are privately advocating to extend for days the marathon voting session known as Voterama. That's a political tool they are allowed to use under the rules of budget reconciliation. And if they have the stamina, they could hold this figure even for weeks. As of now, we can report that two controversial projects will be pulled from the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill that passed the House. The relief package will no longer include the $140 million extension of the Bay Area Rapid Transit Line and the $1.5 million for the Seaway International Bridge from upstate New York to Canada. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin. For now, negotiations continue. And another headlines out of Washington. A new Pentagon watchdog report has issued a scathing review of Texas Representative Ronnie Jackson during his time as White House physician. That report comes after a years-long investigation into Jackson by the Inspector General. The findings conclude that Jackson made sexual and denigrating comments about a female subordinate. The report also says Jackson drank and took Ambien while on duty, prompting concerns from colleagues about his ability to provide medical care to the president and top officials. The investigation included interviews with 78 witnesses and a review of a number of White House documents. Jackson says the report was politically motivated. And now to some good news on the nation's vaccination efforts. The Biden administration now saying all adults will have access to a COVID vaccine before the end of May, months earlier than anticipated. This as states defy recommendations by health officials and continue to reopen their economies. Lorraine Caceres has more. On Tuesday, the president making a bold but promising statement. This country will have enough vaccine supply, I'll say it again, for every adult in America by the end of May, by the end of May. That's progress, important progress. The new administration pushing to get kids back in school in the first 100 days. Biden asking states to prioritize teachers. But our girl goal is to do everything we can to help every educator receive a shot this month, the month of March. So far, states have determined their own priority groups, creating a lot of confusion. In Texas, teachers are still not a priority. And in Florida, they are now only vaccinating those 50 and above. Because we think we're going to get J&J &J this week and because we are starting to see higher allocations of the Pfizer, we're also going to see these federal sites open up in four different parts of our state this week. Uh, I'll be signing an executive order later today uh, to expand vaccine eligibility to all sworn law enforcement officers age 50 and above, all firefighters age 50 and above, and all K-12 through school personnel age 50 and above. A stark contrast compared to Ohio, where teachers were among the first to get vaccinated. Now the state is vaccinating all pregnant women, child care personnel, law enforcement and funeral service employees. The administration is also asking Vice states to continue mitigation efforts. Now is not the time to let up. I've asked the country to wear masks for my first 100 days in office. Now's not the time to let our guard down. But states are continuing to open. At least 11 have either recently loosened restrictions or plan to do so in the coming week. On Tuesday, Texas announcing it is back to business. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 
100%. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Health officials growing more and more concerned about a potential fourth surge. If we do not completely suppress this, we will continue to be challenged by variants which have a way of coming back to bite us, as they say. And hospitalizations continue to be down. In the last month, they've been down 50%. But the CDC continues to predict a shocking amount of deaths that could happen in the coming weeks. Up to 47,000 more people could die of COVID-19 before March 27th. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, in Texas, the governor, as you just heard, has lifted the statewide mask mandate despite warnings from health officials about not loosening those restrictions. Pedro Rojas joins us live from Mission, Texas. What's the very latest on this that we're hearing, Pedro? Well, after Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced this yesterday in Texas, there's a lot of reactions and local health authorities are making statements about what's taking place in their local regions. Every region is different. And Hidalgo County in South Texas is a county that has registered the second highest numbers of death in the state. To talk about what he thinks about what Governor Abbott initiated yesterday in the state, we're going to have with us now Dr. Ivan Melendez, the health authority of Hidalgo County. Dr. Melendez, thanks for talking to us. Let me just ask you first about what is your reaction about this announcement from Texas Governor Greg Abbott? Thanks for having me on, giving me the opportunity to share my comments with the community. Absolutely, we were taken by great surprise. Uh, we were quite frustrated. It was impactful. There are a few things that stand out in the last one year that we have felt as we've gone through this pandemic. Our first case, March 21st, when I got the disease uh, in May, um, when I took care of my neighbors who passed away, and, and yesterday. Yesterday, one of those five most impactful moments in the year that we've been battling this. Why? Because we're working so hard. We're getting such fantastic advances and we're beginning to discuss about opening up the community. But I know after canvassing the medical community in Hidalgo County, um, we are all in agreement. I will say 99% <laughs> that this is way too much, way too soon. We believe that when we're still registering half a thousand people a day, when we've consistently had 10 people die every day, um, this is certainly not the time to uh, get off the uh, accelerator. We believe this is the time to continue messaging the same thing, the things that we know that work, that science has proven, and to encourage vaccination. Texas is different from one region to the other, but specifically your area here in Hidalgo County has seen a lot of death. It seems like the governor went ahead and made this decision not consulting each of you guys to find out what was going on in your region. Was that something that you felt that was missing in this issue? Yeah, first you're right. Multifactorials make us different. Every area is different. Uh, understandably, uh, giving the governor some credit, it's very difficult to coordinate more than 90 counties and to take everyone's opinion. That's why he has his own uh, advisors there. But absolutely, in those areas where the impact has felt the greatest. Remember, his mandate is, or his opinion is, we do not have to mandate it. We encourage it, but we don't have to mandate it. My response to that is, there hasn't been one person in this community that has not been directly impacted by a death or by severe disease. <clears throat> and have we seen the behavior significantly change? No. And so unfortunately, and I always hold optimism, most people require a mandate 
most volunteer behavioral changes are difficult. And why? Because we've been alive for 200,000 years as a species, and we're being asked dramatically in months to change what has kept us alive for 200,000 years to socialize. And so it is impossible uh, to not have it mandated. Thank you so much, Dr. Melendez. And as you can, guys can see here in Texas, the reactions to this announcement by Governor Greg Abbott are fairly, fairly different. Back to you. Thank you, Pedro, for that report and for that interview. And some health officials are concerned about a decline in COVID-19 testing. The COVID tracking project shows that test rates have dipped by a quarter since mid-January. The CDC says those tests are critical to controlling the pandemic in particular because of the spread of a number of variants right here in the U.S. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In New York, a push is underway by state lawmakers to repeal Governor Andrew Cuomo's expanded executive powers related to the coronavirus pandemic. Under the bill, Cuomo would no longer be able to issue new executive directives. Also, modifications or renewals of current pandemic-related executive directives would be subject to legislative review. The bill is expected to pass quickly and go to the governor's desk within a week. All this comes amid growing controversy surrounding sexual harassment allegations against Cuomo. And in New York City, many Latino neighborhoods are facing a serious rent crisis. Residents there growing more concerned about losing their homes because of economic hardship. Blanca Rosa Vilches brings us a closer look. A quick tour of Latino neighborhoods could give us a clear idea of how behind some residents are on rent. I owed $1,020 and I'm afraid of being kicked out. Some of my friends owe eight months of rent. They lost their jobs during the pandemic. In New York State, uh, in January 2021, there was an estimated $2.2 billion of rent owed. And in uh, February, that rent only increased. Um, and the people who have been most severely hit are women, uh, women of color and immigrants. Nationwide, Americans owe more than $58 billion in late rent payments. 12 million renters owe an average of $5,850 to their landlords. Between 10 to 40 million Americans are in risk of losing their homes. In New York State, we have an eviction moratorium until May 1st, but during the eviction moratorium, tenants have still been responsible for rent owed. So after May 1st, tenants will have to pay the rent that they've accrued over the course of a year. And if they aren't able to pay that, then they will be at serious risk of eviction. The problem is getting worse every day. That's why it's much needed, the federal help. In New York, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. 
Now to California, where an effort is underway across several California counties to bring the coronavirus vaccine directly to farm workers. In coordination with growers and county health officials, mobile clinics are popping up at fields in order to vaccinate thousands of agricultural workers. Joining us now by phone to talk about these efforts is Diana Tellefson Torres, executive director of the UFW Foundation. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Diana. Let's get right to it. Mobile clinics are showing up directly on site at farms and other workplaces. Why is this key a step in order, a key step in order to get agricultural workers vaccinated? Well, thank you, Andrea. You know, farm workers are certainly essential workers, but we need to ensure that we're treating them as such. And a first step here in the pandemic, given how many deaths that we've seen of farm workers, and given that they are so high risk, is to really ensure that they are getting vaccinated. So what we're seeing here in California is not only through our advocacy have we been able to get farm workers prioritized um, in phase 1B, but we're also starting to have vaccination events on the ground in certain locations where there are large uh, farm worker populations. And so the UFW Foundation has been working um, with Monterey Farms, where I'm at right now. Um, Monterey Mushrooms is uh, a union company, and we have hundreds of farm workers here. And then we're also opening up the site to farm workers from Santa Clara County who are either living or working here. There is a lot of vaccine hesitancy among black and Latino communities in general. Is that what you're seeing among farm workers as well? Is that what you're seeing on the ground there? You know, our outreach and education is pretty expansive in various states. We have a call center that we've set up where farm workers um, can call regarding any issues for pandemic relief. Um, we're doing outreach and education on the ground in the fields, in the communities where farm workers live and work. And what we're seeing is that farm workers have a lot of very practical questions. They're asking, you know, do you have to have insurance to be able to get the vaccine? Do you have to have a documented legal status? Do I have to show an ID? And so we know farm workers, you know, half of farm workers here in the country are undocumented. Um, from a survey that we did with over 10,000 farm workers, you know, we know that 78% said that they were uninsured. So once we answer those questions that, yes, they can access a vaccine, they are very much willing to get it. Our um, tech survey showed that three out of four farm workers were willing to get the vaccine as soon as it was made available to them. So we're really seeing this anxiety and urgency to make sure that they're able to have access to a vaccine, that it's close to them, that it's during, that they're being provided during times when they are available, when they're off of work or at the workplace. Diana, what lessons can other states with a high concentration of agricultural workers like Florida take from California's experience right now? It's important to work with community-based organizations who have historically served farm workers. Um, both the UFW Foundation and the United Farm Workers um, have been working both with growers and with county officials and the state of California to ensure 
that there is collaboration because there are trusted messengers who have developed relationships with farm workers on the ground over the years who are doing the type of outreach and education that is necessary to ensure that farm workers' questions are being answered. And so it's important to include those different trusted messengers in a strategy. And a strategy to reach workers needs to be very intentional. It needs to um, include an allocation specifically for farm workers because when we see that many farm workers are vulnerable, many have limited digital literacy, so getting a registration to get a vaccine appointment has been a barrier and a challenge. And so you need intermediaries to be able to help with that process. And resource allocation is very much needed for those community clinics on the ground and nonprofit organizations and unions who are working directly with workers to be able to be, you know, have basically boots on the ground to be able to provide the necessary information to workers. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing there. Diana Tellefson Torres, Executive Director of the UFW Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us by phone. Take care. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.